dance friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoyne. And I'm Lydia Murray. We are editors at Dance Media, and in today's episode, we'll be paying tribute to Anne Ranking, the extraordinary dancer and actor and choreographer who died unexpectedly this week. We'll get into the damning allegations made by Chloe Lopez Gomez about the racism she experienced at Staatsballet Berlin, and we'll discuss what those allegations say about the wider ballet world. We'll talk about the fact that Ratatouzical is really actually happening in real life and the various questions that that raises. And then we'll have our interview with Kim Bears Bailey, who has been a member of the Philodenko family since 1981 and who was recently named the company's new artistic director. She is succeeding Joan Myers Brown, the company's founding artistic director and a hugely influential figure in the dance world. And we talked about what their new relationship will be like since Brown isn't actually going anywhere and what Bears Bailey's own hopes are for the future of Philodenko. But before we get started, are you friends with us on social yet? Because we're a fun and informative follow, I promise. And we love hearing from you all too through those various media. Um, you can find us on Instagram at the.dance.edit and Twitter at dance underscore edit. And of course, make sure you're signed up for our daily newsletter, which is a digest of the day's top dance stories. You can do that at thedanceedit.com. So now it's time for our weekly dance headline rundown. And because it is jam-packed this week, we're just going to get right into it. Go for it, Courtney. All right. So London theaters went dark again Tuesday night after the UK government imposed tier three COVID restrictions on the city. This means the West End, the Royal Ballet and English National Ballet and Sadler's Wells, among others, have had to cancel shows just weeks after reopening. Uh, Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber was quoted in the Evening Standard saying that it seemed arbitrary and unfair that people can jostle uncontrolled in crowded shops, yet orderly, socially distanced theater going is banned. What a mess. Yep. All around. But something that is a little bit brighter news, um, beginning March 1st, artists in New York City will be able to stage ticketed events on streets and other open areas thanks to the new Open Culture Program, which was modeled after the city's outdoor dining efforts and should hopefully bring some much needed relief to the arts community. Ray of hope. And meanwhile, upstate, Kotspahn Cultural Park announced plans to host another outdoor performance festival in May. Dancers from American Ballet Theater, Mark Morris Dance Group, New York City Ballet, and Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater will headline across the two weekends of programming, which has also been expanded to include music, poetry, and the culinary arts. The actors Jamie Bell and Margaret Qualley are set to star in Fred and Ginger, the upcoming biopic about Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. The film will explore their individual lives as artists as well as their professional and romantic partnership. Thank you for choosing actors with dance backgrounds. Yes. Yes, so curious to see what comes of that. But rather than waiting to add to your weekend watch list, there is a lot of ballet drama now streaming or about to be. Tiny Pretty Things dropped on Netflix on Monday. Think Riverdale, but at a dance school. And docuseries On Point, following students at the School of American Ballet, hits Hulu tomorrow, December 18th. Plenty of binge-watching opportunities there. And speaking of dance news from the larger entertainment world, BTS keeps lighting it up like dynamite. I had to. Uh, the pun had to happen. Just don't apologize. <laughs> Leaning into it. Um, the Korean pop icons and my longtime faves have been named Time's Entertainer of the Year. I will say the suits that they wore on the cover got the me. suits. Join uh. us. Join us. <laughs> Uh, in more joyous news, American Ballet Theater star James Whiteside is hosting an online holiday benefit to raise funds to help provide 150 students with at-home dance floors. Fancy Nut Mix will feature Whiteside and a number of his friends dancing a multi-genre suite of Nutcracker divertissement, including Isabella Boylston, Tyler Peck, Harper Waters, Al Blackstone, and Demi Remick. They're also promising an interview with the elusive memer behind the satirical Ballet Moods Instagram account, which I'm intrigued by uh, as well big, as a big reveal it's a bit it's a big get uh as well as interviews with jack fervor and reed bartlemy of with dance and stuff fame and even james's newscaster alter ego shannon bobannon who you may have heard fires news like a cannon uh that will be streaming this sunday december 20th at 7 p.m eastern on james's youtube channel i am so here for all of that that is wonderful. Bless him. <laughs> and Dance Theater of Harlem member Alicia May Holloway will be a contestant on the upcoming 25th season of The Bachelor. Very intrigued to see how 
they portray her on that show. I hope they give her the respect that dancers deserve because that, that has not been the way that show has historically treated dancers. So fingers crossed. Indeed. Um, taking a bit of a sad turn here, uh, we said goodbye to a number of Dance World luminaries this week. Um, Othello Dallas, an early Catherine Dunham dancer who was instrumental in passing on the Dunham technique to new generations, particularly in Europe. Astad Dabu, a pioneering Indian choreographer who toured his uniquely contemporary take on Katak and Katakali all over the world. William J. Gillespie, a philanthropist who provided notable support to dance and presenting organizations, in particular American Ballet Theater, whose Orange County School bears his name. And Louis Peters, a.k.a. Louis Olivares, an American-Spanish dancer, choreographer, and dance historian who performed with the likes of Jose Greco. They will be missed. Oh, it was a particularly devastating week for the dance world. I mean, every death is incalculable, but this week felt really heavy. In our first segment, we want to take a moment to honor a dance artist whose death felt truly shocking. That's Anne Ranking. She died in her sleep over the weekend at age 71, and the cause of her death is still unknown. She was, and it's genuinely strange to be using the past tense to describe one of the most present performers of all time, but she was a dancer and an actress and a choreographer. She had roots in ballet, but she was best known for her long-term symbiotic relationship with Bob Fosse. She was his muse and for a time his partner. There was simply nobody else like her. Yeah, you know, I think when we talk about choreographers' muses, um, sometimes we can overlook their personhood and overlook the fact Mm -hmm. that without them being there as vehicles for that work and remembrances of that work and evolutions of that work, we wouldn't have that choreographer. I think Gwen Verdon is very much early Fosse, but Anne Reinking is just the epitome of later period Fosse. And I think also she was just such a singular dancer um watching her there's a sense of cohesion and organization this idea that she knows to the barest millimeter exactly what every part of her body was doing at any given moment but at the same time none of it ever felt calculated it felt instinctual and vital and like it was just coming from the core of her being i think she really embodied the idea of dancers having knowledge in our bodies that maybe we can't quite articulate with words. I found myself, whenever the news was breaking about her passing, I kind of very quickly noped out of Twitter. I just didn't want to deal with it. But then when I came back, the first thing I saw was um, this like minute and a half clip of her dancing and all that jazz. And I, I just, I couldn't look away. And I think that that was Anne. My earliest memory of Anne Reinking was her performance in the movie Annie as Daddy Warbucks' personal secretary, Grace Farrell. Mm. I loved that movie when I was a kid. I watched it countless times. She was so elegant, so strong, such a fluid yet dynamic dancer, and she portrayed that character with such warmth. And her range as a dancer, as an actress and singer, was just mesmerizing and fantastic. In 2007, Dance Magazine published her account of auditioning for Bob Fosse for the first time, which was in the summer of 1970. And one reason I love it is that even though she was known as this larger-than-life icon, that essay really underscores the raw passion she had for the art form itself and the hunger she had to master her craft. And that drove so much of what she achieved, even though she may seem like this kind of otherworldly figure. Lydia, I love that you called out We Got Annie because that number in its just full-on joy, it's very different from the usual like sardonic, gimlet-eyed Fosse approach that we typically associate mm. with Anne Ranking. Um, and I like that in it you can see her connections backwards to old Hollywood stars like Anne Miller and then also the influence she's had on today's musical theater stars like Sutton Foster, who then went on to, to do that very role, to do that Grace Farrell part. I mean, Courtney and Lydia, you both already said basically all of this. But she also helps shape this type of sensuality that many people think of as Fosse, but it's actually ranking. It's mm. ferocious and unabashed, but also extremely refined, as you were saying, Courtney. She's completely full-bodied, but also incredibly specific. And I also, I mean, I just want to call out a lot of people have been talking about that clip from All That Jazz, about there'll be some changes made, and rightfully so, because it's incredible. But there's also this clip of her dancing Big Noise from Winnetka, which is the like, like that one? Have you seen that? I don't think I have. 
so it's this high speed, intricate choreography. She was performing it on some 1980s variety show. I should know what and I don't. But even though it's like faster than anything else I've seen her dance, she's completely relaxed and at ease the whole time. Her hair is literally down. It's yet another facet of Mm. her greatness. I think it's also worth shouting out, like she co-directed and co-choreographed the Broadway show Fosse, which yep. Sylvianne Gold wrote a few years ago for Dance Magazine, a story talking about all the now great Broadway choreographers who came up through that show as ensemble members. Like, yeah, we kind of got Andy Blinkenbuehler because of that show. And that show is because of her. Absolutely. She won a Tony for her uh, choreography for the revival of Chicago, too. And like then she, she performed in it. Like, <laughs> okay, icon. What we're saying is this one really hurt 2020. I think if the lights on Broadway were still up right now, they'd definitely be dimming this week for her. Our next segment can actually also be filed under 2020 being terrible, although it centers on a problem that long predates 2020. Um, We're going to talk yet again about the ballet world's well-documented racism, and there's now even more documentation on that ever-growing pile. Chloe Lopez-Gomez, a Black dancer who joined the core of Stats Ballet Berlin in 2018, recently gave a series of interviews to media outlets around the world detailing her experiences with institutional racism at the company. And her stories, which were confirmed by several others affiliated with Stats Ballet, they're harrowing. They focus on some allegedly terrible behavior by one ballet mistress in particular, but the issue obviously isn't just one bad actor. It sounds like that person was enabled by the company as a whole and also by the old ballet world preoccupation with uniformity, heavy quotes. That's often just a thin veil for racism. Where to begin with this story? Uh, Well, just to name a few of the things that Chloe Lopez Gomez mentioned having allegedly experienced, she said that the day after her audition, a ballet mistress told one of her colleagues that she didn't think the company should hire Lopez Gomez because a black woman in the court of ballet is not aesthetically pleasing. She said that she spent about 90% of her time under this ballet mistress's supervision, and she endured racist mistreatment from her for two years. One of the egregious examples uh, was that the ballet mistress directed all of the female dancers in the company to wear white powder for Swan Lake. Uh, and when Lopez Gomez told her that she would never be white, the ballet mistress replied that she'd just need to wear more powder than the others. She also said things like, you're not in line and that's all we see because you're black. There were just several really troubling incidents that were reported here. So some of the themes of this. There's the problem of the extreme power imbalance of ballet masters and dancers, especially ballet masters with lifetime contracts and dancers on one or Mm -hmm. two year contracts. This creates a culture of fear and it discourages company members from voicing their concerns to leadership. Lifetime contracts for ballet masters, should they even be possible? There's the lack of a safe channel for company members to report harassment or discrimination. The idea of uniformity, which is so outdated and goes back to a time when ballet dancers were all white. But of course, guess what? That's not the way it is anymore. It's not the way it should be. Well, and I, for once, like kind of am agreeing with Benjamin Millipied, mm-hmm. uh, which feels a little strange for me. But in the New York Times, he was quoted as saying, this army-like idea of everyone in unison, everyone looking identical, is a major problem with ballet. It is an incorrect view. What makes the scenes work in Swan Lake or Labayadere is great dancing, a sum of everyone's energy and individuality, not a display of pancaked white people. Fully agree. And there's also the age old idea that ballet dancers have to suffer for their art. And that racism is just another component of this suffering. I think it's safe to say that for a lot of people who hold old fashioned beliefs about ballet, enduring abuse is the expectation. And it's assumed that you'll just accept targeted mistreatment according to whatever way in which you don't meet the traditional ideal, or as a means of paying your dues, and that mentality needs to end. And situations like the one we're seeing with Chloe, of course, just hinder the survival of ballet as a whole. Keeping ballet relevant is always an important issue, but especially now when the art form is in peril due to the pandemic and when the world is still in the midst of a racial reckoning. This is not the time, it's never the time, to fuel the idea that we're backward, out of touch, and fostering hostile environments for people of color or for anyone. This is a multicultural, interconnected world, and young people, many of whom are already facing financial precarity, 
don't want to pay their hard-earned money to see a production or company that signals to them that they don't belong or that has been accused of hurting someone because of who they are. I mean, Misty Copeland's success has proven the power of diversity to bring new audiences to ballet. Can you imagine how many people outside of the dance world had never heard of Stotts Ballet Berlin and their introduction to it will be these news stories? It, and it didn't have to be that way. Um, and change is possible. Oh, hard retweet. <laughs> Like, okay, Lydia, go in. What Lydia said. I, I do want to call out, Teresa Ruth Howard just published an op-ed in Dance Magazine that unpacks a lot of the issues that were raised by Lopez Gomez's testimony, a lot of which Lydia just laid out beautifully. She gets into the fact that companies continued use of aesthetic practices like white makeup and pink tights and shoes unnecessarily, quote, makes blackness an unsolvable problem in ballet, end quote. And also leaning on the old when it comes to repertory, too. Like, why are we still making these racially problematic works central to ballet? Because they, quote again, telegraph ballet's commitment to whiteness unnecessarily. And she also gets into what Lydia was talking about, the power imbalance that's so toxic mm. in most ballet companies. Why are artistic leaders generally passive when they're confronted with allegations of racism? They have this formidable gatekeeping power, but often keep quiet in the name of respecting boundaries. And it's time for them to start holding themselves accountable. And I, th I think the relationship between dancers to ballet masters to artistic directors is something that could honestly be unpacked a lot more. Because yes. I know mm -hmm. I have definitely heard stories about you know, friends who are in companies who the artistic director is very supportive of them, but also the artistic director, when they're not there, they're at the whims of the ballet masters, some of whom have favorites and have people that they really don't like. And that directly impacts dancers' careers in a way that isn't as publicized as artistic directors' decisions. I mean, also, too, this old idea of uniformity in the corps de ballet, it's often a covered not just for racism, but also for sizeism. It's just toxic all around. I, I, and it's at best an incredibly oversimplified way of thinking about what, what makes ballet beautiful. It's just wrong and outdated, and we've got to get rid of it. We've got to get rid of it. Totally agree. Anyway, bravo to Chloe for speaking out. We hope she's currently being flooded with job offers because let's not forget she's also a beautiful dancer. Yes. So rooting for you. Our next segment offers a bit of much needed relief after this hellish week. Um, it turns out that the TikTok generated collaboratively written musical version of Disney's Ratatouille will in fact be happening in real life. It was announced last week that Seaview Productions will present a filmed concert version of the viral phenomenon, which they've titled Ratatouille, the TikTok musical. It's going to stream January 1st as a benefit for the Actors Fund. And the dance at its Slack channel was a very festive place for a while after that news came out. Um, but after we finished our, our squeeing, we realized there are now a whole lot of ratatouzical questions that need answering. Like, which of the hundreds of TikTok songs out there are they going to choose? Who is the they doing the choosing? How is this production going to credit the TikTokers who birthed it? Here's what I love about this is because it is happening IRL, but still on the internet, the possibilities for who can actually be involved in this are kind of endless. And I think that's so much in the spirit of Ratatouzical. And I just really love that about it. And I didn't choose the Ratatouzical life, but I feel like it's chosen me. It's and chosen this is just the us. most. <laughs> it's just really nice. I just love that this is happening. I don't like have much like coherent thoughts to add because I just love that this is happening. Me too. I just I feel like seeing the number of creatives who've come together for this, ranging from choreographers to costume designers and songwriters and just about every other aspect of production has been one of the highlights of 2020 for me. I mean, it's just such an example of the power of the arts and the resilience of artists. And I want to know, you know how and when will they reveal the team? Um, Playbill recently reported that the details would be announced at a later date, but I'm impatient. Also, it's in like two weeks, though. Yeah, it's happening really soon. So how, like, how? Just how? I mean, I have to say I'm hopeful because the creative team, first of all, made all their social handles at Ratatouzical, which even that seems like they're going to be true to the spirit of this thing because like however amorphous the thing itself is on TikTok, the spirit of it is clear. I am 
curious to see how they're going to credit the TikTok creators, how they're going to involve the TikTok creators, because it would be especially bad form not to credit TikTokers when TikTok itself pioneered this sort of crediting revolution that was long overdue. And beyond credit, how are they going to compensate them? Do we also want to talk about dreamcasting? I want to see Andrew Barth Feldman as Alfredo Linguini. Cadence is just listening <laughs> and you can't hear her, but she is nodding so enthusiastically right now. Yeah, hard agree. I don't have dreamcasting for this, but I really want this to launch like, I don't know if any of you guys were around for a very Potter musical when that blew up on the internet the first time. Like it literally launched Darren Chris's career as well as like the people on that production who are all like University of Michigan folks who like just put on a show together. Like they all like took that launch pad and did such extraordinary things and had a fandom grow up around it. And I just, my heart of hearts, like I would love to see like some up and coming like performers and choreographers and songwriters and set designers like actually have their careers launched by this. I think that would be incredible. Totally. And Is the creative team going to do some crowdsourced casting? Because it seems like they're very open to that idea, given what they've posted on social so far. Maybe they will discover those next big things on TikTok, which would be so appropriate. That would be kind of fantastic. It would be wonderful if this could become a full-fledged Broadway production. And since we're on the topic of Broadway, what will happen to the 2020 Tony Awards now that the year is almost over? Yeah, sidebar. And there's been no word about when it's happening we were told early december and there's been nothing and now it's mid-december just radio silence from the tony awards admin committee yeah the ensemblist has been posting a ton about that we have no answers only questions pretty much so thank you ratatousical for filling our musical theater needs i suppose yes one of the few not terrible things to come out of 2020 don't mess this up ratatousical people (laughs) we need it All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll have our interview with Kim Bears Bailey. So stay tuned. If you love the Dance Edit podcast, we have a feeling you'll love the Conversations on Dance podcast too. Started in 2016 by former Miami City Ballet dancers Rebecca King Ferraro and Michael Sean Breeden, it brings you closer to the dancers and artists you love. Each week, Rebecca and Michael sit down with a new guest to learn about their careers and experiences within the art form, with episodes that interest students, professionals, and enthusiasts alike. The Conversations on Dance podcast is back now with all new interviews, and its more than 200 past episodes include interviews with Isabella Boylston, Alastair McCauley, Justin Peck, and Jennifer Garner, to name just a few. Listen to Conversations on Dance wherever you get your podcasts or on conversationsondancepod.com and connect with them on social media at Conversations on Dance. This week's guest on the podcast is Kim Bears-Bailey, who was recently named the new artistic director of Philadelphia-based modern and contemporary company Philodenko. Kim has been Philodenko's longtime assistant artistic director, serving under founding artistic director Joan Myers-Brown. And before that, she was a celebrated dancer with the company, which she first joined in 1981. She has a BFA from the University of the Arts, where she's now on faculty, and she's taught in stage repertory all over the world. Welcome, Kim. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You have this beautiful history with Philodonko as both a dancer and a leader of the company. Can you talk about how you first came to the company and and then how and why it became a home for you? Okay, so I'm originally from Washington, D.C. That's where I started my dance career in Washington. And when I decided after high school, Duke Ellington High School Performing Arts, one of the premier high schools to go to if you were interested in, in the arts at all. Um, I came to Philadelphia, researched, uh, which is now the University of Arts, which was Philadelphia College of Performing Arts. And it it had the tone of what I was looking for in terms of furthering my career uh, as an artist, um, uh, expanding out in uh, areas outside of the studio. And um, so I came immediately after uh, high school, I came to Philadelphia. I was actually the first grad, the fourth graduating class out of Duke Ellington to come to University of the Arts. Um, so that already set a tone in my head that this must be the place to be. Um, so early in my um, freshman year, in my first semester, uh, of course, Susan Glazer and Edna Cohen were 
the the staples there um, directing the the dance department, the school of dance there. And Edna Cohen took me to my first Philodenko concert. Of course, I had heard about Philodenko. There was so much passion and verb around when people talked about the company. And I said, okay, I have to go see this Philodenko. And five minutes in, I was blown away, blown away, um, not just by the repertoire, which was so vast and diverse, so many spectrums being a contemporary modern company, but the dancers, the dancers and their skill set and their training and and you could just stay exuded across the screen. I went, that's what I want to do. And also they look like me. So, you know, um, you know, Jomai's Brown started this company because she wanted to have a place where, where black dancers, dancers of color could have a place to continue their, their training, continue their art form. And I saw that on stage, the men were strong and just um, passioned and, oh, it was just amazing. So anyway, I was bitten. I was bitten immediately by that. And little did I know that one of the dancers in the company was also at the University of Arts and you never know who's watching. And he approached me and said, I think you should audition for Philodenko. And I just, I just kind of was speechless. <laughs> and I, and I'm thinking, really, you see me there? I didn't see me there yet. Um, of course, I've been working hard and training to to be there. But he saw something, and he said, "You should try it." And on January 11th, 1981, my life changed. I was number 14. I'll never forget it because my life did actually change. So I, I took the leap of faith. And then Joan Myers Brown took the leap of faith on me. Joan Myers Brown obviously has been this anchor for the company. And as you said, I mean, a force for change in the dance world as a whole, too. How would you describe the working relationship that the two of you developed? You know, it, we're, we're in a partnership right now. And I, I, I know that it's always been that. But I've also been part of the mentoring um, since the day I walked in. And, you know, when you have somebody who embraces you and takes you in their arms and starts that mentorship on day one, and it never wavered. Um, one of the things about uh, those that have wisdom, <laughs> um, those whose shoulders we stand on, is that they see it before you see it. And I knew early that this was the place I would call home, but she knew it before me. I, I have to believe that um, in how I managed to um, just grow in this organization uh, as a dancer and then as part of the administrative organization, um, artistic, artistically, and then now um, as a predecessor. So um, the partnership is real, it's honest, it's humbling, it's, um, it's nurturing. And so, um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna stand on her shoulders <laughs> until the end um, because this is ultimately her vision. But what happens when you come here and you stay? It becomes part of yours as well. But the root, where it came from, where it was ignited from, was from Joan Myers Brown. And when you step on board and become a part of that, and making sure that it is sustainable and it continues, and the legacy goes on, then, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, so Ms. Brown had said for a while that she was planning to end her tenure as artistic director this year when the company is now hitting the 50-year the mark, which is amazing. Congratulations. What was that, that process of determining an artistic succession plan like from your perspective? Because Ms. Brown has been the company. I mean, I mean that, she's the face, the, the, the soul behind the company for so long. What was your voice in the process? What was it like? Okay. Well, first of all, she's going to continue to be that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you, when you have that, you know, now she is artistic advisor. Again, I want to, to stand on that um, because it is the root of where this all started. Um, but uh, as I alluded to in the beginning is, Ms. I want to say mom so, so much, um, <laughs> Joan, um, you know, she watches, she listens, she observes. And so everything comes out of a, a need of what needs to happen. Her, her school started out of a need for having a place where young dancers of color could come and study. The company came out of a need of these dancers now not having any, uh, any place to go. And so 
this is not something that was thought about overnight. I'm sure this is something that she's thought about for many, many years. Um, and the succession plans come from different parts of the organization. And artistically, you know, I know that she and I have had that conversation and timing is always um, something that's really important to her. Um, when is the right timing? We talked about it. Um, is this is this your is this your plan? Is this your dream? Is this your desire? Um, because the moment I say it's not, then something changes there. It doesn't mean that I don't um, I'm not a part of the, the the company and its and its legacy. But immediately that conversation changed to being something that I could see myself being. Um, did I imagine that it would happen in a pandemic? <laughs> no, but in her eyes, it happened way before then for her to be really um, secure and sound uh, that this was the, the right um, placement. Um, and again, because I've been groomed and mentored in this artistic place with the company for so long, for so long. I became assistant artist director in 1989. Um, and my goal was always to one, make her plate lighter. Um, because when you see someone work that hard 24 seven, at some point you want them to sit back and just um, relish in the fruits of their labor. And so timing, timing was, was, was right for her and it was right for me. Um, and it's not going to, it's not gonna be something that's gonna happen overnight. Um, succession is something that's ongoing. Um, learning this new position, um, which is not totally new, but being able to delve in deeper and that aspect of the artistic um, decisions uh, with the company is something that I'm going to continue to um, grow in every day, every day. Can you talk about what aspects of this job as it evolves will be new to you? Uh, so when I say new, um, you know, I, I work a lot behind the scenes because my overall objective is the product, the dancers. I mean, that's why we're Philodenko. And so my, my mission has always been that whatever that conversation is that uh, Ms. Brown and I have about um, where, do we, where do we see the season going this year, what choreographers or dancers we wanna bring in, then that's, that's where I start doing the back work. So now I'm gonna be sitting at the table kind of like open front and center, um, which, is, which is, I always, she always gave me a voice. But now my voice has to have a different kind of intent. Now I have to realize that these decisions or comments or ideas that I bring to the table are now part of me bringing that to fruition. And so, um, but you know, in anything that you do, even in the things that I've done that I could do with my eyes closed, there's always more to learn. I don't ever want to arrive at a place where I feel like I know. Um, the greatest thing that this pandemic has offered is for me to be right underneath her foot, footprints, right underneath her armpits, right, right next to her um, to say, um, of course, socially distancing, but um, because unfortunately the lack of, of touring that I'm able to be right here to continue to watch, to continue to be mentored, to continue to um, know the follow through of what comes next. And we've talked about it. Um, I'll, our consistent um, kind of regimen of meeting and talking here is always two, three years ahead. So it's not like me taking on this succession all of a sudden, woo, we have to think of what are we gonna do now? The now has already been thought about. And so my mission is to make sure that it's followed through and carried through. And you've touched a little bit already on what Ms. Brown's vision for the company was. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little more about how you will be carrying that into the future, what will that work involve going forward, especially coming out of the pandemic, since this is sort of a, a strange time for everybody in dance? Yes, this this time has definitely offered um, quite uh, a lot of challenges for many arts organizations um, that you have to rethink and kind of, I don't want to say rethink, kind of reimagine um, how you move forward. Um, one of the things I, I, I understand and definitely know is when you, are with an organization that celebrates 50 years, five zero, 50 years. Um, there's a reason why we've maintained for so long. And part of that is our mission statement of bringing the highest quality of dance uh, to our audiences um, near and far. 
um, to continue to um, have the best training at, 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 our, at our fingertips, um, to continue to educate our community here and at large. And those things are something that you continually work at to maintain. Um, dancers come and go, but the, the root of excellence that we, that we maintain here and that we um, look for in our artists, that never wavers. And so the next generation prepares it for the next group that's coming in. But the dancers we have here are so strong and resilient. So um, looking forward, um, because we were already on a mission of presenting four beautiful works with four amazing choreographers that didn't get to happen when it was supposed to happen, but we're still looking ahead to the future for those things happening. Uh, we're celebrating 20 years with the Kimmel Center and they have been right there behind us, supporting us through all of this. And so it's looking at how do we then step back into um, this kind of pause moment where we were so that those things that we wanna present, those things that we wanna to continue to talk about and express as a major contemporary company, that those things still um, uh, come, to, come to light and still stay at its point of excellence. Um, we've done some things under this pandemic uh, with some of our dancers, uh, of course, following all the gui guidelines. We've, we've done lectures and um, conversations with universities. Um, I still get uh, many uh, emails from dancers who are saying, when, you, when you're ready and you open and you have auditions, I'm ready to come. So just keep me, um, keep me glued on, on what that is. So I guess, I mean, I know I went around the world to, to say, um, it's a continuum. That, that's part of my mission as being part of the succession. You don't come in and totally do an abrupt change when something has worked. You maintain what has worked and you bring um, new energies and new um, ideas to bring to the table. Um, I come to the table with the collective. I, by no means, I'm gonna do this by myself. There's an artistic team, Deborah Chase Hicks, who's been the rehearsal director and coach. It doesn't work without her. You know, we can't get to that place on the stage without her. Marlisa Brown Swint, um, as part of the artistic team, it doesn't work without all of those elements coming together. And so again, what I do want to offer is that Ms. Brown gets to gets to take that step back and you know, watch and still have her hands in from, from a distance, but at the same token that she doesn't work 24 seven, <laughs> you know, that I want her to see that what she has indeed nurtured um, is, is working the way she envisioned it to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And paying full respect to the fact that you are continuing a legacy and that you're not working alone um, and that it's early yet. I know just sort of starting down this path. Yeah, absolutely. But what what would you say are some of your own hopes and goals for the company? You mentioned, you know, new ideas, new perspective. What are you hoping for, both bigger and smaller picture in this new role? Well, you know, being here 40 years, I've seen so many um, transitions. And when I say artistic, again, I have to go back to the product of why we all work so hard, and that's the company. Um, having danced with the company for 20 years and knowing the ins and outs of, of what um, the dancers um, really need so that they get to do exactly what they're here to do, and that's to be excellent in their craft. Um, that's, that's where, you know, and, and Ms. Brown, of course, has, has always um, fought for all of that, like having financial security so that these dancers know that they have a place that they can call home if they want to call it for the next 40 years. Um, the continuing the fight for Philadelphia to really um, recognize that national treasure that they have here. Um, you know, I've been on tour with the company where we sell out before we even get to New York City or before we even get to Germany. And, and you know, we come home and there are empty seats in the theater. And I know Ms. Brown used to say, it's like the Liberty Bell syndrome. Oh, it's there, we'll see it. But we, we, I, re, I really want in her, in her lifetime to see that kind of recognition and support as a continuum and full range, you know, from finances to, to um, seeing us on, a, on many billboards, not just one or two, um, but, you know, just being able to see your own home 
kind of recognize you that way. Also, um, putting my my ear and my eyes in the pulse of what's happening out there and looking at choreographers that will bring, that will come in and infuse a, a, a newness um, on top of what Philodenko already possesses to um, figure out what, what that looks like in the continuum. Um, looking at dancers and, and who out there is gonna bring that new energy um, to something that's already has a foundation to it. So I just wanna, I wanna be um, ahead of the ahead of the game even more so um, in that in that regard of being able to see and hear and listen the way Ms. Brown does 24 seven. And so now my, my senses have to elevate <laughs> so that um, we can, um, you know, bring in the newness that's out here now, but also as we maintain the historic um, uh, presence that Philodenko has done for so many years. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but are <laughs> there any are there any choreographers that you're willing to to talk about who are on your dream list who might sort of speak to the Philodenko legacy, but also take it in a new direction? Uh, hmm. I think I'm going to plead the fifth on that. Okay. <laughs> Uh, because you know, once you speak it, <laughs> once you speak it, and um, you know, and I'm, sometimes you don't want them to see you coming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some, you know, because you want to be on that back end, watching and observing, and um, you know, and I think that's the beauty of what Aunt Joan does. Uh, we had a uh, a concert that featured alum of uh, Philodenko um, success stories, and. You know, I was on the receiving end of that phone call where uh, Ms. Brown called and said, hey, <laughs> I would love for you to create a work for our success stories, <laughs> you know, production. And them literally being speechless, like, really? Like like me? You want me, you want to showcase me? And, you know, and uh, I think that's beautiful that um, that they know that she never stops watching. Um, that she's always looking to elevate the artist, and um, and so as I am again um, new in this position, I have um, sat down with my artistic team, and we have um, jotted down some names and uh, are looking at um, possibilities. Uh, but again, uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself because we are still two, three years into um, already. Um, conversations with choreographers that we know that we want to bring in. And a lot of them are people that have already been here and created work that that are coming into newness of their own, that we want to be as we have been that hub for them to bring that creativity to Philodenko. Uh, and so I don't want to be remiss and that those that we have celebrated over the um, past few years that we are, want to continue to celebrate them. And we already have two new choreographers that we're bringing on board, Bakari Lindsay out of Canada and Catherine Spitz out of Washington, D.C. And so that's already um, opening doors to um, the newness of what's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so as, and again, as you've touched on already, Philodenko has, from its inception, it's played this critical role in presenting and preserving Black dance traditions. I mean, for decades, you've been doing this work. Yes. Can you talk a little about what that work means to you, both as an artist and and just as a as from a human perspective as a person? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, like I said before, not only standing on Joe Myers Brown's shoulders, but we stand on the shoulders of those who have paved the way for us to be able to do what it is we do in some ways so freely, but yet still so far to come. And choreographers like Tally Beatty and uh, Pearl Primus, that their work uh, has come out of a need to make change um, in social justice and um, to bring um, uh, light to the inequities uh, that, that Black dancers and artists have endured for so long. And so it's their blood, sweat, and tears that they have worked so hard to um, not only entertain the audience, but also educate them. And so we have a responsibility to be able to um, um, carry that legacy on. And it's wonderful that they 
saw the need to find Philodenko to be that home. And I know it's because of Joe Mars Brown's commitment um, to preserving um, the rich legacy of these works that that um, cause for change and that we want to not forget. Um, and so we have been that hub for works like Tally Beatty did Southern Landscape, which uh, he created in 1947, talking about the Reconstruction era. And, uh, you know, and timing is of, of the essence in terms of when do you present these works so they really, really set that tone and really, really um, resonate with your audience and, and entertain as well. Um, but we are committed to maintaining that, uh, being able to perform those works and it hits your spirit in a way that nothing else can. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be the repository of Pearl Primus's Negro Speaks of Rivers and Strange Fruit, that she was the only one to perform it in 1944 until 1988, when uh, through American Dance Festival uh, did the reconstruction um, uh, concert where, again, she was watching and chose Philodenko to be that repository of that work. That, that speaks volumes when a choreographer who spends their life's work um, presenting works to make change and you put that in the hands of, of a young dancer. Um, and so, um, you know, Strange Fruit dealt with uh, a lynching, something that I've never experienced in my life, but also understanding, um, having to understand what that meant for her to step out and um, present a work like that to, to talk about these, um, uh, uh, issues that um, were destructive in, in her time and, and can still be in some places. And so, um, you know, the fact that we have maintained that speaks to the integrity and um, the commitment and the demand to never forget um, and to celebrate these artists that have opened doors for us to continue to do the work that we do and know that the, the journey isn't finished that we must continue um, to fight like they fought. We must continue to celebrate um, our riches and also speak to um, things that just aren't still aren't right. And so, um, yeah, it's it's been um, a wonderful journey to be able to be part of the um, repository that continues these works and in, in, in terms of resetting them, remounting them. Um, and so I, I have a great responsibility for these artists who are no longer with us to bring them into the space with the dancers, to talk about what it was like to be in the studio with Pearl Primus or Tally Beatty or Jean Hilsagon or Louis Johnson, these amazing artists that fought hard, but brought so much beauty um, to the um, concert stage at the same time. Kim, thank you again so much for sharing all these insights with us. And before we say goodbye, I wanted to ask you, are there upcoming Philodonco projects or events that you'd like to highlight to make sure that we don't miss? Okay, so again, it's challenging in this pandemic. Uh, all of our touring from 2020 shifted to 2021, 22. Um, again, working with the Kimmel Center, we are in hopes that we can present our season that was supposed to be in the spring. Um, at a later date in the spring of 2021. But until then, uh, we want to, um, we're bringing forth uh, via Zoom, via um, uh, Instagram, um, some lovely uh, little uh, tidbits of Philodanko. I don't wanna, I don't wanna spill the beans, but I want people to look out for us. Go, we have a new website, go to our website. And of course, anything new is all, always, uh, and it reimagining itself to be even greater. So, um, but uh, working closely with these choreographers, we want to bring them to the forefront, get you to meet them um, personally on a one-on-one -on -one basis. So we've done some interviews with them. We know that we have to bring the arts back to not only our community, but to the world at large, because it's not only entertaining, it's healing. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I know people are missing it. And that's the beauty of, of dance. It, it takes you on a journey where um, you don't have to live in this pandemic, you know, emotionally 24 seven, 
even for that hour and a half, we can take you away. So stay tuned with us, um, you know, go on our Facebook page and our Instagram page and our website and um, continue to support, continue to support Danko, continue to support the arts so that we can thrive and continue um, even in a pandemic. Um, and I just want to note the, the Philodenko website is at philodenko.org. We'll, we'll link to that in our episode description. And we'll also link all of your social pages so that everyone can Absolutely. properly, properly keep up. <laughs> oh, I'm so mad I didn't talk about IBD, but. Um, you you know, can go. I, we're still recording. You can go uh, ahead. Okay. Yeah. So and that's Associates of Blacks and Dance. You know, Miss Brown, Aunt Joan, Mom, Miss Brown, all those, all those names um, started this. This is what, 33 years we get ready to embark on. And, you know, and that's still thriving. You know, the, the website is still up. Um, we're still out there engaging and being that hub for companies all across the globe. Uh, because we bring that that conference every year, I'm I'm looking forward to how it's going to be a re- re- reimagined come next Jan come January, so that we continue to uh, keep our mission going um, of supporting Black institutions, Black companies, and um, organizations and organizations at large. We'll make sure to include links to um, IABD their site and then information about their conference as well in the episode description, so everyone can can check that out. Thank you again so much, Kim. Really, really appreciate you making the time. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to um, want to hear um, my story, um, bring Philodenko's story again to the forefront. Um, that means a lot. Stay well, stay safe. One more big thanks to Kim for her candor and her perspective. And for reference, and we will indeed include all these links in the episode description, but for reference, you can find Philodenko on Instagram at Philodenko and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Philodenko. And the IABD website is iabdassociation.org. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We'll be back next week, actually, with a special holiday episode. Stay tuned. In the meantime, keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, friends. See you next time, everyone. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Neenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those football sounds. Find out more about the Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Dance Edit.